This is Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Primal Screen is about movies, from the ones on the big screen to the ones you stream. Hope you enjoy the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. Hello and welcome to Primal Screen, a show and podcast all about screen culture from movies on the big screen to whatever it is you're streaming. Uh, we are broadcasting tonight from the Triple R studios on the stolen lands of the Kulin Nation. This is and always will be Aboriginal land. I'm your host, Flick Ford, and joining me tonight is Will Cox. Hey, Will. Hey, hey. Yes, hello. Hi. <laughs> And Vaishnavi Vijayakumar. Hey, Vaish. Hey, how are you? Very well. I'm a little bit sweaty. <laughs> Summer has begun. <laughs> they didn't. They couldn't see that. <laughs> they couldn't see that. You'll I could have, have left to, it off You'll radio. have to imagine it. But they can yeah. hear it now. <laughs> <laughs> they can hear the sweat. Hear the sweat dripping through the mic. <laughs> listening onto the desk. So what better way to finish our final show of 2022 than to be talking about sweat on air? Because the summer summer is, is now and it's been quite a year. Um, and I want to give a, a special thank you to everyone who has, um, all the guests and reviewers who have joined me on the show this year. Um, and a very special shout out to Stewie Richards, Paul Anthony Nelson, Lisa Kovacevic, Eloise Ross and Wilcox and Taufan, who have throughout the year stepped into the hosting duties and allowed me to travel interstate to see my family, to finish my PhD and, um, you know, occasionally have some time off. So big thank you to all of you. Um, and also thank you to Carl Chapman for guest panelling while I was away and to Luke Lay who joined the Primal Screen family earlier this year and has been doing a marvellous job of editing our podcast each week and posting on our socials. Um, thank you also to Dave Houchin, Beck Hornsby and Elizabeth McCarthy from Triple R for all their hard work behind the scenes. You can, of course, listen back to all Primal Screen interviews and reviews via the Triple R website or by subscribing to our podcast. So on tonight's show, we're sharing what summer releases we're most excited to see. Last week, we had Paul Anthony Nelson at the helm for our top films of the year alongside Stewie Richards and Eloise Ross. And the number one film as voted by the Primal Screen team was Ruben Oslin's Triangle of Sadness, which just so happens to be my number one summer recommendation. I, uh, I think it was my number one. Yeah. Actually, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, technically it wasn't my favourite film of the year. That went to um, You'll Never Be Alone. But I, I definitely in the, um, in the top, top three. And Triangle of Sadness, it did screen as part of MIF earlier this year and will have a general release in cinemas on Boxing Day. And last week I had the pleasure of speaking with the writer and director of Triangle of Sadness, Ruben Oslin. Hope you enjoy our chat. So, is this runway casting for a grumpy brand or a smiley brand? So it's a grumpy brand, yeah. Congratulations! Show me that Balenciaga look. Suddenly I'm dressed in something way less expensive. It's H&M! Yay! Balenciaga! And H&M! Balenciaga! And H&M! You looks paid for the tickets. Not bad, huh? <laughs> so what do you do? I sell shit. The success of a luxury cruise mainly depends on you. I don't want to hear anybody saying no. It's all 
always, yes sir, yes ma'am. I command you, enjoy the moment. No, no, no. <laughs> what? You say no to me? No, no. Oh, so it's yes. Yeah, no. Yes. Go oh, in. Yes. <laughs> the saints. Do you think it's possible to wash them? I don't think that's possible, ma'am, because this is a motorized vessel. Yeah. So we don't have any sails. It was sails. Yes. Well, then, in that case, we will clean the sails. Yes. Of course. Yes. Ruben Osland, welcome to Primal Screen. Thank you so much. Your latest film, Triangle of Sadness, premiered at Cannes earlier this year where it received an eight-minute standing ovation and won the Palme d'Or. And it also screened here in Melbourne as part of the Melbourne International Film Festival and has been met by high critical acclaim. And on Boxing Day, it will have a general release here in Australia. So, Ruben, your first three feature-length films were Guitar Mongoloid, uh, Involuntary and Play. Listeners will likely be familiar with your 2017 film The Square and my personal favourite, Force Majeure, from 2014. What listeners may not know, and the ski lodge setting of Force Majeure is something of a hint, is that you first began your directing career making ski films films. How did that come about? Uh, well, I was brought up in Sweden and my mother came from the northern part of Sweden. And uh, every winter we went up to uh, the mountains that was in the northern part of Sweden. And I was, uh, uh, when I was around 12 or something, I started to ski uh, in ski resorts, like free skiing. And uh, I got very interested in that. Uh, and I started to look at ski films uh, when I was uh, spending my summers on Styrsjö, where I was brought up on the, on the west coast of Sweden, and decided quite early that as soon as I'm finished in school, I'm going to be a ski bum. You know, I'm going to do my <laughs> first season in a, in a ski resort. And uh, I got the opportunity to borrow a, a, a VHS a video camera uh, from the commune of, of Styrsjö. And me and my friends, we started to film things that we were interested in, like mountain biking and rock climbing. And uh, we brought this camera also when we were going to ski resorts together. And we did it uh, with a great passion. And uh, um, slowly I realized that this could become my profession. So I was asking a, a, a production company uh, that was doing ski films in Sweden, if I could, if, if I could film for them. Uh, and they said yes. And so I spent like five years on, on different ski resorts around the world, filming skiing in the winters. And, and then uh, I also started to make my own ski films on that company, editing them together with rock music in the summers. And then we sold these uh, films on VHS copies uh, from the ski magazines like Powder and Skiing and so on to other fanatic uh, uh, interested uh, skiers. So it was a very sp special uh, time in my life, but also uh, a good thing because I was I was 
so interested in what I was doing. So it was very easy to get these 10,000 hours of experience. Yeah, I bet. And I feel like we really shift gears with Triangle of Sadness and that wonderful vomiting scene from the wholesomeness of ski films. Look, many of your films seem to delight in moments of extreme discomfort between characters in which sort of the expectations and rules of social behaviour are rigorously tested. Of course, in Force Majeure, we sort of details the aftermath of a man's decision to save himself rather than his family in a close brush with an avalanche. Uh, the Square has that achingly painful exchange between Klaus Bang and Elizabeth Moss uh, determining the fate of a used condom and its contents. <laughs> and in Triangle of Sadness, we open with a young influencer couple who are arguing about who should foot the dinner bill. Uh, these scenes are often darkly hilarious, but they also speak to an unspoken truth about human behaviour and relationships. What is it that draws you to capture these exchanges on screen? Well, often I, when I go for content of my scenes, I often go to situations that I remember myself. Um, when I have been in a conflict with a certain kind of expectations of who I should be, and then from my, my own point of view, who I wanted to be. So a, a certain gender expectation often that is connected to uh, like the, the culture uh, idea about being a man, for example. If you are a man, you should sacrifice yourself for your family and protect your family rather than, of course, running away and saving yourself. So that was something that I used a little bit in Force Majeure, uh, where a father is abandoning his family when there's an avalanche approaching them on, on a ski resort. And then it turns out it was only the snow smoke that reaches uh, the restaurant where they were sitting. So, so there were a false alarm and he had to go back, but he still had broken the contract of who he should be. So, and I love the situation like that because nothing had really happened, but at the same time, the, he had done something that is very hard for, for the wife and the family to forgive. And um, um, I think it's something about us human beings, we are animals, but we are also dealing with culture. We are also dealing with the culture expectation. And in the conflict uh, that comes with these two uh, elements, uh, a lot of us, I think we have problems to fit in. I think we have a problem of feeling 100%, uh, how to say, matching the culture that we are living in. Um, it's just it's just a fundamental part of being a human being to not 100% know how to deal uh, with the culture expectations. Yeah, absolutely. I heard in for Triangle of Sadness, you were kind of going for a cross between Michael Haneke and Larry David, which I think is a wonderful combination, which really speaks to a lot of what you capture, those kind of not quite fitting in, not quite getting it right. Yeah, equal parts, devastating and hilarious. No, but uh, it was actually a journalist, a critic that wrote that um, when he or she, I don't remember who it was, was watching my films, and they said it felt like being in and Michael Haneke and Larry David uh, <laughs> at the same time. And I, I'm, I get very happy of contradictions like that because I feel I don't want to be too easy to place as a director. And I, I want the audience, when they are watching my films, not being 100% secure. Is this comedy? Should I laugh about this? Is it a tragedy? Should I actually show my sympathy for the characters? So the audience should have to be on their toes <laughs> and uh, 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 evaluate their own reaction. 
and uh, um, be active when they are watching my movies. I think we're we're certainly that. And the the internet is is littered with anecdotes about your filmmaking approach. It's rumored for the square that you like to focus each day on a single scene with sometimes as many as 50 takes. Um another day you the cast got to spend time with a bonobo and you know we're given rules about how not to provoke some violent attack. And many of your films seem to be drawn upon real life experiences or even YouTube videos that you've discovered. How would you describe your filmmaking approach? I think that I have a sociological approach to filmmaking. I like to study human behavior and uh, I almost compare myself to a nature filmmaker. You know, if you see someone that is uh, doing nature movies with buffaloes and lions on the savanna, it doesn't really moralize if the lions are eating buffaloes. It's just watching them and can feel sympathy both for the lion and for the buffalo. And I feel that I want to do the same. I want to have sympathy both for, for the, the uh, how to say, the victim and the perpetrator. Uh, I, I want to take a step back and uh, uh, not moralize uh, uh, on the character's behavior. Um, and I love when I find a dilemma that the audience can identify with and understand how hard it is to handle. And uh, therefore, we also can understand why it's possible to fail when we're trying to handle that situation. And and that kind of situation comedy or um, situation-based content for the script uh, is important for me because I think we live in a time where we are pointing our fingers on the individual and are saying shame on you or you are a hero and dividing us in good guys and bad guys. Uh, Even in news reporting today, it's almost that you can't report about the news without having a good guy and a bad guy. And I think it's very sympathetic with sociology that actually is pointing the fingers on the context of a situation and saying with this context of a situation, we all can fail. We all can actually behave bad. It's a certain kind of knowledge that is uh, liberating for me. Yeah, I'm, I'm really struck by how many of your films involve this kind of ethical dilemma, you know, that sometimes in relation, like you said, to gender, like the argument I mentioned before between Yaya and Carl, the start of Triangle of Sadness. But it also has to, you know, can sometimes be with the human-animal divide for the square. There's often this intersection with class, power and race. And like you say, somehow these films, they never... St- sort of tip into the moralistic or educational monologues and instead these tensions seem to be presented without judgment and and usually without clear resolution. What do you think is the responsibility of the filmmaker? Well, the responsibility of the filmmaker is that it's a fact that uh, the moving images, the movies that we are producing is going to change people's behaviour. It's going to change how the audience are looking at the world. And uh, that is just a fact. If it wasn't like this, uh, advertising movies wouldn't work, for example. So um, I think it's important for me as a filmmaker that I want to give the audience um, uh, a movie that makes them reflect on the content, makes them not just consume it and then move on uh, without, uh, how to say, provoking any thoughts. And I also have to give them uh, references of life that I believe is true. 
there are very uh, interesting examples of movies that have given the audience references that is not very useful. For example, it was uh, uh, the author of Sub, uh, Gomorra, uh, Robert Saviano. Um, he, he said in an interview, he wrote a book about the mafia in Neapel. And he said in an interview that half a year after a very popular American gangster movie had been released in the world, the young gangsters of the Comorra, they started to shoot with a gun on the side like this, the so-called gangster style grip. And the consequence of that it is that it's very hard to hit the enemy and the shootouts became much more bloody and the police had a mess cleaning up afterwards. So even if it's completely irrational to shoot with a gun on the side instead of the vertical grip, uh, these young men were starting to imitate uh, the behavior of the characters in these movies. There are another examples of that, the couples that are looking a lot on romantic comedies, they divorce or separate more than other couples. Uh, they're, they're hilarious uh, uh, examples of how moving images are, are changing our behavior. So that is something that I have been very interested in. And, and therefore, if you, when it comes down to the, to the responsibility of the filmmaker, yeah, we need to be aware of this. And it's interesting because you talk so clearly about cinema, but you've been involved in many different art forms and medium. You seem to get very involved in your films. I heard you created a fashion line ahead of uh, making Triangle of Sadness called Discreet Bourgeoisie, um, which is a lovely nod to Bunuel. The, the idea is that these clothes can um, hide you in the upper middle class. And I understand you also um, you entered a, an installation into a museum prior to your work on The Square with uh, your producer. Is that right? Yes. Um, it was actually uh, something that uh, became the inspiration for the movie The Square. Um, me and actually my mentor, he had been in the film industry since the 60s, Kalle Boman. Uh, we had an idea about creating a symbolic space that is like a white marked square that we should put in the center of the cities. For example, in Gothenburg, where I was uh, brought up. Uh, there were uh, there were a lot of occasions where there were robberies going on in the city and people were struck by the bystander effect. We didn't know who should have the responsibility. No one interacted. No one helped uh, the victims. And this was even though there were no really physical danger involved in the situations. So we had an idea of creating a, sim a symbolic place where we are reminded of our role as fellow citizens. Uh, and uh, we wanted to create a social contract that if someone is standing in this white marked square, then it's my obligation as a citizen to address this person and ask, how can I help you? And uh, uh, it was interesting because, you know, people said to us, ah, you're so naive, this is not possible and blah, blah, blah. But if you look at the traffic rules, if you look, for an example, on a zebra crossing, a zebra crossing is uh, an extraordinary example where we, with a couple of lines in the ground, have created a social contract that is super strong. Uh, uh, that the cars should be careful with, uh, with, uh, with the pedestrians. Or if you look at the fact that in Sweden, at least, we are driving on the right side of the, uh, right side of the street. Everybody's doing it. It's amazing that we have created a social contract where actually everybody's driving on the right side of the road. And in 1967, in Sweden, we changed from left-hand traffic to right-hand traffic over one night. Even uh, eight or seven million people 
aware of tomorrow we are starting to drive <laughs> on the right side of the road. And there were less uh, accidents then than there have been in the history of uh, traffic in, in Sweden. It's just examples of how a social strong uh, contract can change our behavior. And we can change our behavior in any direction we want. Uh, we just have to agree on it. We have to work on it, of course. And uh, the square, uh, this white mark square where we have built this social contract or trying to build this social contract is now built in four cities in, in Scandinavia. Yeah, and in the cities where they actually are working on making the public know what the square represents and what the idea is, uh, they are using it in, in kind of interesting ways, actually. Yeah, it's fascinating. I'm, I know that um, with your family, your mum... I believe he's a communist, but your brother is, you describe him as a right-wing liberal. Um, it sounds yeah. like you had plenty of material to draw upon when sketching out some of the political discussions and debates that are sprinkled throughout Triangle of Sadness. Was your own family a big inspiration for some of these discussions? Yeah, but it's fun when I, when I try to describe myself as a filmmaker and why I ended up where I ended up, I say it's a combination about making ski films and socialism. <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, in my upbringing, my mother, okay, she became a left wing uh, during the 60s. As many people that were young during the 60s, they were influenced about this political movement. Um, uh, and... Uh, uh, my mother became a communist, and she's one of the few that still uh, consider herself a communist. And um, one thing that I can see from her life is that she is getting so much joy from being politically engaged and constantly talking about what society does she want, having political discussions with her friends. And um, uh, it, gives her, it gives her a richer life. And um, every day, every, or every time we have a Sunday dinner in my family, then there's a, uh, a loud political discussion because my brother is much more right wing uh, than she is, and a light right wing liberal. Uh, and I don't know, maybe right wing liberal do doesn't make sense in in an Australian context. Is it more like the, in the US? Because as soon as you say liberal in the US, it, you are talking about someone that is left wing. Well. Actually. We've got a confusing thing where um, our more right-wing party is actually called the Liberal Party with a capital L. <laughs> okay. okay. Um, but no, we do have right-wing liberals with a little L. Yeah. Okay, then I understand. But um, uh, and and I enjoyed these discussions a lot. Uh, um, but it's almost like um, my brother and my mother they are sharing for two different football teams. So it's not really about improving the quality of the society. It's more that you hope for your team to win. <laughs> <laughs> and yes. That's wonderful. And I found it interesting, like obviously as a filmmaker and being so highly acclaimed, you know, you're, you're kind of surrounded by the elite. And I know that for one of the scenes in the square, you actually have some of Sweden's 1% in, in the crowd, <laughs> some of the, the yeah. your country's wealthiest art patrons. I thought that was a wonderful little inclusion. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, I'm trying to include everybody in my films and I'm, uh, I'm trying to be equally... Uh, mean to them or <laughs> nice to them. I don't want to treat them differently only because they're rich or poor. But I, I think it's interesting when you talk about like the content on Triangle of Sadness and some reactions to it that I feel is a little conventional reactions. That is that I'm trying to portray the rich as 
how to say egoistic and uh, the poor people as genuine and generous and i have really really tried to avoid that i i wanted actually to make the rich people very nice uh <laughs> because i don't believe in the kind of explanation that is like that uh, rich people are egoistic and mean you know but, well, uh, the, very... sorry to interrupt sorry? This. i was gonna say two of the nicest characters in triangle or at least the sweetest seeming characters in triangle of sadness happen to be arms dealers which i think is That's... a wonderful <laughs> inclusion <laughs> definitely my idea so i told um amanda and oliver that plays the characters okay i want you to be the most sympathetic characters that i've ever, ever created and you just happen to have made all your money of selling landmines and hand grenades and stuff like that but we have to we have to really look at um, uh, look at these things in a different way than this, uh, how to say, it's a little bit of a leftish, stupid way of looking at things that the factory owner is mean. And if you go back to Marx, for an example, I mean, Marx, he, he, he was not only the founder of the Communistic Manifest, he was also the founder of sociology and one of the founders of sociology. And one of his best friends was uh, Engels, which was a factory owner. And uh, Marx also saw the, the great things about capitalism, that it can build our society and, and makes us um, get a lot of, uh, how to say, uh, economy into our world and uh, improve the industrial uh, industrialization, et cetera, et cetera. So um, we, 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 we shouldn't like tend to go into this simple explanation about that, um, uh, your character is defined by which position you have in a financial hierarchy. Your behavior maybe uh, is defined by it, but not like if you are mean or uh, nice, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, the circumstances that the characters find themselves in Triangle of Sadness definitely is something of an equalizer, which leads to some very interesting, uh, very interesting turn of events. Um, Ruben, I know you're currently doing the press for Triangle of Sadness, but what is next in the pipeline for you? Well, I'm working on a film called The Entertainment System is Down and uh, it takes place on a long haul flight. So if you think about a flight that is going from London to Sydney or something like that, you know, over 17 hours long uh, and quite soon after takeoff, um, the passengers get the horrible news that unfortunately the entertainment system is not working. <laughs> Uh, so when iPhones and iPads are charging out, we have modern human beings that have to deal with uh, the horrible boredom of not being able to distract themselves with their uh, screens. <laughs> I'd be <feel> lost. Uh, <laughs> it's going to be hilarious. Uh, and it's going to be a very entertaining movie about no the entertainment system be uh, being down, basically. Oh, wonderful. And I think we've all become quite reliant on our phones and our laptops, particularly during lockdown. So, um, yeah, that'd be very exciting. So when are we expecting that to reach our screens? Maybe in three or four years. Okay. It depends a little bit. Um, <laughs> I, I, I've decided that I wanted to work very carefully on my films and not work too before they are 100% finished so yeah maybe four years yeah well I'll, I'll definitely be looking forward to that one I have loved all of your films and I am particularly um, in awe of a triangle of sadness I have never laughed so much <laughs> during that um that vomiting scene <laughs> that seemed to just go on uh into a point of excess which was really wonderful <laughs> Thank you so much for your time and, um, yeah, it's a real pleasure and honour to meet you. 
Thank you so much. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Will Cox, Vaishnavi Vijaykumar, and myself, Flick Ford. Uh, just prior, you would have heard my chat with the writer and director of Triangle of Sadness, Ruben Oslin. Uh, Triangle of Sadness was voted number one film of 2022 by the Primal Screen team in last week's Countdown. And the song you heard just prior to those sponsorship announcements was the wonderful MIA with Born Free, which is the opening track to Triangle of Sadness and uh, I think wonderful opener. <laughs> Um, and Triangle of Sadness is going to have a general release here in cinemas uh, on Boxing Day. And it's my pick for what to watch over the summer break. Will, I understand you also had the opportunity to see Triangle of Sadness at MIFF and it also made your top films of 2022. Yes, it did. I, I can't remember exactly where on the list. It might have been at the top for this for this show. So mm. I was glad that it, um, it topped the poll overall. I think my number one last year was probably disqualified because it was... A TV show. We'll go back. We'll, we'll come back to that sometime. <laughs> Got some beef from oh. last year's poll. <laughs> I've been holding on for <laughs> about 12 months. Air, air out your dirty laundry. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, it was actually, you said it was extremely fun. I think you said in the cinema you haven't laughed that hard uh, yeah. during the interview. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Uh, I think it was the most fun I've had in the cinema since before the, the pandemic because it was a packed cinema at um, Hoyt's. Yep, yep. And it was just, it, the laughter was so loud that, um, that was over the top of the top of the dialogue, which was just perfect. <laughs> and that was particularly during a, a pivotal scene right in the middle, which goes on far longer than is comfortable, <laughs> as is Ruben Ostlund's want. Yes, yeah. of course. I, it does fit into my favourite category of film, which is very uncomfortable films that make me squirm. Um, <laughs> so it was a real pleasure to be able to chat with Ruben. And I highly recommend that if you didn't get a chance to see it at the festival, that you do check it out over the summer break. Vaish, are you going to make sure it's on your list? Yes, I've got like literally a whole list of films that I've missed um, at MIFF that I'm planning to go see over the summer break. So I'm really excited to see it. And I feel like it's a nice one um, after the end of White Lotus to kind of, you know, punch up at some really affluent people on holiday. (laughs) Totally. And great, great shout out to White Lotus, which we did review on the show uh, a few weeks ago. Um, Yeah, wonderful. Kind of similar territory, really. So, yeah, a great chaser, really. Um, I actually love summer for many reasons, but uh, it is wonderful to catch up on um, all the films that you miss throughout the year, and, you, and especially when all the top films of the year list comes out, and you're like, oh, I've missed that, or, yeah, this is the time to do it. Um, Will, another film that's getting a lot of buzz is the follow-up to uh, Knives Out, Glass Onion. Yes, the follow-up to Knives Out, um, but also part of the trifecta of rich people on holiday need to die <laughs> uh, media, which... <laughs> It's the special of tonight's show, isn't it? It is the theme. This is Glass Onion. Um, It's a perfect companion to Triangle of Sadness, a perfectly summary look at billionaire hubris, I think. Yeah. Um, Edward Norton plays a tech, uh, billionaire tech mogul, uh, more known for posing than actual innovation, uh, (laughs) who invites his circle of rich idiot friends to a murder mystery party on his private island. But among them is world-famous detective Benoit Blanc, played with an inscrutable southern accent by Daniel Craig um, and things get a lot more murderous than intended. <laughs> uh, and it is extremely fun yes. and it is it is everything that you want a, a murder mystery to be. That is, it's very funny, properly unpredictable and well-crafted story, yeah. I think. Oh, well, that was what was so great about Knives Out and I was surprised 
where by how much I loved that film. It is I can't, if you haven't seen it, I can't recommend it enough. I think that the script is exceptional, and having these really well-known, otherwise quite serious actors in mm. these roles is such a lovely twist. And it shows that so often comedy is just left out of um, when we're talking about mm. good cinema, mm. and it, it just gets seen as kind of the you know fluff often. And, and this has and, got a, a great. Um, uh, ensemble cast as well. I mentioned Edward Norton and um, and, and Daniel Craig, obviously, but there's um, Janelle Monae, Catherine Hahn, oh, Kate Hudson, Dave Bautista, and Jessica Henwick, and a whole bunch of celebrity cameos I won't give away because they're more fun that way. <laughs> but, yeah, it's just a great cast. And they're all – there's a fair few of these Hollywood big cast films coming out lately, and usually yeah. they just look like a big – well, like a big wank, frankly. But this is. Did I put a language warning on that? I don't know. No, I checked. You don't need to. No. Um, but um, no, this is this is genuinely extremely extremely funny. And Edward Norton's character obviously is based on a real figure, a real tech billionaire mogul, um, who you know hates sponge kind of figure who I won't name, but we'll just call him Elon Musk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just a neutral name. Very closely modelled on him, I feel. It's it's yeah. it's very cathartic watching. Yeah. yeah. And I um I it had a what a week at the cinema and now it's on Netflix. Oh, yeah, because Netflix. Yeah. yeah. A week and then they just pulled it. Um and it's gone straight to Netflix now. It seems it seems a shame because something that I really love about and I, you know, there's so many films like The Stranger earlier in the year was one of my favourite films of the year. And you know, I did see that at cinema. I encouraged everyone who listened to that episode to watch the film in the cinema. It did obviously play on Netflix. It's just such a different um, experience in seeing those films on on your small screen. And even if you have got a fancy setup, it's never going to be quite no. as good as the cinema. And also, there's a cr- there's a crowd participation participation with those films, yeah, like sure. we had for Triangle of Sadness. Yeah, it's, it's and, a group catharsis, yeah. I think, as yeah. you see, like because it's so funny and it's just it's it's really taking people down a peg, and it's it's great. But um, yeah, I mean, I think Netflix simultaneously commissioned this and another sequel mm, to Knives okay. Out. Which I was glad to hear about, and then I yeah. saw it was Netflix. I was like, oh, "Okay," but it looks great. It feels, it felt perfect in the cinema. It's, it's a shame more people won't get to see it that way. But um, great, it's really good. Well worth checking really out. Good. I'll, I'll, I'm definitely going to add it to my Netflix watch list. How about you, Vash? Is that because you really enjoyed the Knives Out as well, didn't you? Oh my god, I really loved it, and that Who Done It um, genre is so my vibe. Like, I love Agatha Christie, Miss Marple, and like Poirot. So, <laughs> I really love this film and seeing like quite well established or serious actors taking a different turn in terms of the types yeah. of roles. Um, and yeah, I definitely agree. I'm, I'm sad that I've um, missed it in the cinema actually because I thought the cinema experience for Knives Out was so great. And I think the thing about those kind of murder mystery um, genres is the the kind of surprise element and everyone gasping in the cinema at the same time and, like, the adrenaline of, like, when you're getting close to the close when you find out who the killer is. I think there is something about that collective experience that you really enjoy. Oh, absolutely. And actually a film that um, I'm very excited to see at the cinema is one of your picks for the summer releases. I'm going to play a quick trailer for it. Um Another massive cast, like fully stacked. So enjoy. I think what we have here in Hollywood is high art. It's party time, sparkle time. If you could go anywhere in the whole world, where would you go? I always want to be part of something bigger. Yes. Let's go. 
something that lasts, that means something. You know, when I first moved to LA, you know what signs on all the doors read? No actors or dogs allowed. I changed that. Morning. Good job for you. I'll do anything. That's the cocksucker they said to screw us. <laughs> that's a great reminder for me to definitely do language warnings. <laughs> no, that's fine too. Yeah. Final show of Last the year. Last show of the year. Come on. <laughs> Chill out. Light masturbation. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, that was, of course, Babylon. I'm very excited about this one. Vaish, tell us about it. So Babylon is an American epic period comedy drama which is written and directed by Damien Chazelle. Um, And as you mentioned, Flick, it features an ensemble cast that includes Brad Pitt and Margot Robbie that you heard there in that clip. Um, And it's about the rise and fall of multiple characters during Hollywood's transition from silent to sound films in the late 1920s. Um, A lot of people would have been familiar with Damien Chazelle's earlier work like Whiplash and La La Land. Um, And what I really love about his films is how they, um, you know, kind of portray these artists and dreamers with grand aspirations um, and and the rise and and, and fall of those characters as the industry or the environments that they're placed in shift as well. Mm. Um, It's interesting to see Brad Pitt and Margot Robbie um, reunited on screen after their previous feature, once upon a time in Hollywood. Um, and, and I do really love that exploration of the transition from silent to sound films and how that affected a lot of um, actors who may not have necessarily had the voice um, for films with sound and how the industry adjusted with that transition as well. Um, I was looking up some of the um, publicity around the film and the one thing that Margot Robbie keeps talking about is this epic orgy scene, um, which would be great to see um, in the cinema. Um, and. <laughs> You know, I'm very interested in the score as well. Um, Josh, Justin Hurwitz, who did the previous scores for Whiplash and La La Land, I feel like the soundtracks are such a big part um, of Damien Chazelle's film, and I feel like this film will be no different in terms of the um, musical accompaniment. Um, and look, I, I really love um, Margot Rusky, sorry, Margot Robbie's like husky American accent. Yes, um, that she always <laughs> puts on in films, like it was there in Wolf of Wall Street, and um, you can hear it there in the in the clip as well in the trailer Um, for this she seems perfectly three o'clock in the morning strung out (laughs) all the time a big night yes (laughs) um and you know what i really love brad pitt like i know like throughout his career he's really been known for for his looks and and maybe you know um some relationship dramas but i i really love him as an actor i think he's um really fantastic he's done such a broad range of um roles and i think this will be a um, great film for him as well yeah, totally. I'm very excited to see this one. I also just kind of similar to you. I just love films about film, um, and totally. and it feels very playful. Um, yeah, it's it's 100 percent on my list. And I think you know you kind of do want to have these big blockbusters over summer. Uh, so yeah, Babylon. It's going to be out Boxing Day. I'm guessing. I think so. It yeah, like everything's coming out. Yeah, day. it does seem that way. <laughs> Although Banshees of Inner Sharon, I think that's out sooner. I think that's out. I have them all written down somewhere. Oh, no, no, yes. I, think, I think it's actually out on Boxing Day as well because I'm planning to see it um, with my husband. Oh, so, yeah. okay. All right. Well, that is my next pick um, Banshees of Inner Sharon. I had the um, privilege. That is Boxing Day. It is. Okay. Yep. Highly recommend this one. It did make, again, my top films of 2022 list. Uh, I really enjoyed this. This is Martin McDonough um, back to his 
form, back to form. I was not a big fan of uh, three billboards. Mm. Uh, lots of issues with that. We don't have time to unpack all the the horrific race relations uh, in that film. However, I bloody love um, In Bruges. And so if you enjoyed that as well, I think you'll really enjoy Banshees of Inner Sheeran. You do have two friends, uh, lifelong friends, um, Patrick and Colm, played by Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson. Uh, and just suddenly one of them decides they, they don't actually like them. <laughs> so it's kind of this crushing end to a friendship. It's a very small film in a lot of ways. It's very simple. But I actually just love that friendship and this sense of a, uh, a community on a very remote island is the the, the focus of this film. Uh, just wonderful. I think when Madonna, Madonna is at his best is when he's dealing with relationships between people, and this and kind of the discomfort of of um, you know just things where that you don't always get along. And I, I just really enjoyed this. I found it very funny, and I think uh, you know it's a, it's a quieter film than the other ones we've mentioned tonight. But I highly highly recommend that you check it out. Um, now the complete. Have, have either of you? Have you, had, you went at the preview screening for that one, or Feist? Did you no. make no Banshees? Okay. No. Yeah. yeah. Okay. No. I do recommend I, it. Yeah. I did, it, but um, I'm really excited to see it. I actually, what I really love is um, the kind of turn that Colin Farrell's career has taken from his <laughs> yes. early days until now. Totally. Yeah. Like, you know, in Bruges, seven sci-fi pads. I yeah. feel like he plays in that tragic dark comedy space really really well it suits his sensibility like even the lobster i thought he was yeah. great in that. do you mean the turn um, from from like a, a a handsome sort of leading man to weird character actor yeah yeah because brad I, pitt's I, done I the same like yeah that's uh, vaish's type yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so my type um <laughs> No, but it's and true. He he. Colin Farrell is wonderful on screen, and he's so good with comic timing. And you see this, and Brendan Gleeson, of course. Like the two on screen, like I I just could watch any film with them both in it. And um, yeah. <laughs> and you hear his Irish accent. You know what I mean? I think it feels different. I, I would think for him as an actor to play like his his more natural self, and obviously a country that he has such a strong connection to. I think that'll bring that authenticity to screen. Totally. And one of the biggest films from this year was uh, Elvis, at least um, in the awards section. I don't know uh, how many awards it actually ended up going home with, but, yeah, Baz Luhrmann's Elvis did take out a lot of awards and got a lot of um, press at the start of the year. We're going to finish the year with another musical uh, biopic, I want to dance with somebody. I want to dance with somebody. Yes. English actor Naomi Aki as Whitney Houston, uh, directed by Cassie Lemons, who made Eve's Bayo and Harriet, which is a biopic of Harriet Tubman. So it's a biopic of Whitney Houston, and it looks to be in the mould of the recent other blockbuster pop music bio, uh, biopics, probably more like Queen and Elton John films than yeah, Elvis by yeah. the look of it. Okay. That's um, encouraging. <laughs> yeah, well, my main complaint about Elvis was that Baz Luhrmann didn't seem to really like Elvis music that much. He couldn't well... really be bothered with it. <laughs> well, I, yeah. There's I'm... at least a bit of Whitney in the trailer for this, so we'll see. <laughs> uh, but it does also give a few of us um, a few hints at the biopic cliches to come, <laughs> starting with the record label exec nodding wisely in the crowd. Um, as Whitney sings, mm. thinking, I'm going to sign her, and her superstardom <laughs> unfolds. But we don't see the downfall in the trailer, which is, I'm sure, going to be every bit as 
tragic. Yeah. Um, I feel like we need to start playing um, trailer bingo. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we see these tropes just played out every time. Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> it's the same screenwriter as Bohemian Rhapsody as well, so uh, I think we can we can probably rely on a on bingo okay. card here. Uh, uh, make of that what you will, the Queen film. Mm. I don't know. I don't know what to say about that. But um, any, anyway, in the meantime, seek out the excellent documentary by Kevin McDonald from 2018, Whitney. Uh, did you see that? No, I feel like that was another one where that was on a lot of favourite films of the oh, year that it came great. out. It was... I missed it entirely. And seeing the trailer, I genuinely watching the trailer for I Want to Dance with Somebody, I was like, I kind of, I really want to see it. I, can't, um, I know that it doesn't oh, look probably amazing. See it. Yeah, and it's the thing where you just want to see how it's done because the story itself is so interesting. Yeah. Um, so I will definitely check out that doco it's, recommendation. It's, the doco is, is such a great unpacking of that mm. story. I, I didn't really know that much about Whitney, but I came out just like, yeah. Mm. Going full Whitney mode, I think. Vaish, are you going to go? Are you going to go full Whitney mode? I think so. I mean, like Whitney Houston was one of those um, artists, which embarrassingly I used to just like. I kind of discovered in my first early years of clubbing when they would always play "I Want to Dance with Somebody" when they go into <laughs> their kind of retro bit of um, the nice tunes. But mm. I don't know. I really love her story. She's such an iconic. Um, you know, actor as well as um, music superstar and, you know, with such a tragic end. And I think mm. her story speaks so much to what a lot of, um, you know, women and, and, and people in the music industry experience from, like, you know, going to that rise to fame and all of the um, dark elements that kind of accompany that as well. And especially with the race relations, like Elvis did – touch upon it <laughs> a little bit <laughs> maybe not maybe not yeah maybe not the best vehicle to explore um you know. yeah <laughs> maybe not the best vehicle <laughs> to explore race relations i feel as though this this film may have a bit more to say on that matter um i'm definitely going to check it out because i can't i can't deny directed uh, by a person of color who has a strong background in making films about people of color there so you, go. you know That's already... i think there's going to be something more to it than yeah. bohemian rat city which again was you know, if you get the real facts in it, it's like, oh, I suppose I could give some lip service to the actual story. Yeah, you know? and that's the thing with these stories. Like, I feel like they occupy such an important space that you do need a really good team behind it. So if you want to check out I Want to Dance with Somebody, I think it comes out Boxing Day as well. Oh, no, January 1, I think, for that one. Mm, Oh, there you go. Special birthday treat. Um, so it's not all only films that are out. We've also got some TV shows. Vaish, tell us about Emily in Paris. Um, so this is just a bit of vapid fodder. Um, <laughs> Emily in Paris is created by Darren Starr, who is best known for Sex and the City, City sorry, and stars Lily Collins and Lucas Bravo and follows the journey of a young 20-something Emily after re- she receives an unexpected job opportunity at a luxury brand marketing agency in Paris. Um, it follows Emily as she makes these cultural faux pas and falls in love with a very attractive local chef, played by Lucas Bravo, um, um, and you know what, like this film, um, this, sorry, this TV series did get some initial negative reviews on its portrayal of Parisians and the French. But I think <laughs> what I really liked about it is actually the um, archetype of the American ignorant traveller. Mm. Um, Emily really plays into that um, character really well. It's a bit of an observation on how Americans often perceive themselves as they are in some respect as strong pop cultural influences. But, you know, <laughs> being in a country like France, where it, they are quite staunch in their own cultural particulars. There's obviously a cultural clash that kind of happens there. 
it's a really great bit of escapism um and you know around the romantic allure of Paris um and I really love Emily's character as this really flawed heroine who's thrown into this really uncomfortable situation and she's totally in over her head but is forced to grow adapt and understand a foreign culture that's so different from where she's raised it's it's really um yeah it's just a bit of fun um and yeah I, I reckon it's a good one for the summer all right good to know I'm gonna need a few recommendations for next year um and I suppose one but we, we we have to can't forget about our Australian releases that are coming. We've, we've got Blueback, which is going to be released. Uh, oh look, I haven't read. Oh, first of Jan as well. So that is a film directed by Robert Connolly um, and screenplay written by Connolly and Tim Winton. And it's based on Winton's novel of the same name. Uh, it does star Mia Wachowski and Rada Mitchell with a very strong uh, Oka accent in the trailer, at least. And um, just about uh, a young girl who basically befriends a blue groper while she's diving and, and she kind of it leads her towards a lifetime of activism. Um, I think that'd be really interesting. It also stars uh, Eric Thompson and Eric Banner. Could it be an Australian film if it doesn't have Eric Banner in? Yeah, I don't know. It's another Australian <laughs> Australian film bingo card. Yes. With Eric Banner. <laughs> Um, adapted from a Tim Winton novel. Yeah, it's got all um, of it. Looks like it's set at the beach too, so yeah. that's very um, Winto. Um, and Robert <laughs> Connolly, who made The Dry. Yeah. Um, another, another hit from, from the other I year. I yeah. Could, could be another <laughs> Dry, another big summer. Yeah. Big summer hit. Well, I hope we've, I hope we've given you some, some hot recommendations for the summer. Uh, you're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. It is a real shame to be um, bringing down the volume on that fabulous track. That is the closing song from Triangle of Sadness. And on tonight's show, I spoke with Ruben Osland, the writer and director of Triangle of Sadness, which has a general cinema release here in Australia on Boxing Day. And then Vaish and Will joined me for a round robin of all the exciting films that are coming out over the summer break. This is the last episode of Primal Screen for 2022. We will be back on the airwaves on the 20th of February, 2023. And there are two fabulous summer shows that will be covering this time slot in the meantime. The Fourth Wall with Andy Lee. Um, It's a show inspired heavily by a love of film, fused with a love of radio. And it's going to be an ode to the moments when you're watching a movie and you hear a song that just hits the right spot. So I'm very excited for that. That is going to be from the 26th of December to the 16th of January. And then we have Eloise Ross and Rowan Spong coming back for Summer Stock from the 23rd of January to the 13th of February. Uh, discussing the latest film gems, contemplating classic Hollywood curios and swooning over soundtracks. So make sure you check out both of those fabulous summer shows. Uh, Vaish and Will, thank you so much for joining me for the final ep. Thank you. Season finale. Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. 